0: The following message is by Pastor Jason Polly. More information from Harmony Bible Church is available at facebook.com backslash Harmony Bible Church. Today, thank you for your grace and this opportunity that we have now to come before you in prayer and also to look to your word. God, I pray and ask that you'd be with us, that you would encourage our hearts and knit our hearts together in love. God, that you'd help us to see the things that we need to see. Help us to not only be hearers of the Word, but also doers of the Word. God, I pray that if there's any words that I have written or plan to speak that are not from You, that You would take them from me, that You would close my mouth. And God, I pray also that You would help me to speak boldly that which does come from You. God, I know that You've used the, the mouth of a donkey. You can use mine as well. And God, I just pray and ask that You'd work mightily in this time as we look to You and Your Word. And we pray that uh, we would be strengthened by it. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So we've been working our way through the book of 1 Corinthians. And today we're going to look at uh, verses uh, uh, chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. And Paul writes this letter to the church in Corinth. He, if you remember, he went to Corinth and he started the church. He planted the church there. He spent a year and a half in Corinth. And the church has struggled. The church has some problems that they need to deal with and address, the church is struggling to grow, they're gifted, they have all the tools they need, they have the gospel, but they need to be pointed back to the gospel so that they may grow and continue in the faith, and and Paul is seeking to correct some uh, struggles and some issues that are going on in the church. So that's the extent of the introduction, we've got a lot of ground to cover, so we're going to jump right in. If you'll look at 1 Corinthians 1 verses 18 through 25 with me, and if you'll stand for the reading of God's Word. It says this, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading, the hearing, and the applying of His Word. Amen. You may be seated. So verse 18 gives us a bit of a summary statement of this section. It says this, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. See, the culture in Corinth was thoroughly Greek, especially in the fact that they loved to think and reason. If you know anything about Greek culture, you know they love philosophy, they love to think, they love to reason through things. They loved wisdom. In fact, the English word philosophy comes from the Greek word philosophia, which actually means love of wisdom. Yet the word of the cross, the gospel, did not fit in their humanistic philosophy. So Paul comes, he shares with them what Christ has done for them. And when I say the gospel, I mean the fact that they are all sinners separated from a holy God. And that Jesus Christ came into this earth as fully God and fully man, died on the cross and took their place, took their punishment. right, And that He was raised on the third day defeating death and suffering. That He took that punishment upon Himself. That's what I mean by the gospel. So that they might live eternally with God. They might be forgiven. And this did not fit with their humanistic philosophy. To many people it was, as verse 18 says, foolishness. The word translated foolishness is uh, "moria," which is where we get our English word moronic or moron. You see, to some, it was complete nonsense. While to others, those who were being saved, it was the power of God. And a lot has changed since Paul uh, wrote these words nearly 2,000 years ago. However, much also remains the same. Today, the gospel is still the power of God to those who are being saved. And it's still seen as foolishness by those who are perishing. This is because, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, verses uh, 14 the following, he says, A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. These things are spiritually examined or explained. He says the, the natural man, he can't understand these things because he doesn't have the Spirit of God living inside of him. You see, the natural man rejects God. Therefore, the things of God are foolishness to him. For without God's help, he can't understand God's ways. So I was talking with Mark during the fellowship time, and he showed me the newspaper headline, I'm sure you've seen it, mocking prayer and saying that our leaders, meanwhile, people are getting slaughtered in our country, and many of our leaders are saying, well, we need to pray. And saying prayer will not help is basically what this newspaper heading said. You see, because the world, those who are perishing, they don't understand God's ways. Because they need God's help in order to understand and they've rejected God. That's why Romans 1 verses 18 through 22 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God has made it evident to them. So the world can say, I don't know what you're talking about. There's no God. And Scripture says, no God says, No, I made it evident to them. Continues on in verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Verse 21 For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. You see, creation speaks to the fact that there is a creator. As Ray Comfort, I've mentioned several times, I love what he says. He says, how do you know that there was a painter? If you see a painting, then you know there was a painter, right? If you see a creation, you know there was a creator, Even though they knew God, they didn't honor Him as God or give thanks. And they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was dark. In verse 22, professing to be wise, they became fools. See, people, those who are perishing, in their own wisdom, they think they can figure out life's answers, and they reject God. We live in a world much like that of Paul's day. A world that is searching for answers. And the problem is that this world seems willing to look for answers anywhere other than God. Just last night I read a news story that said that the Freedom From Religion, not Freedom Of Religion, Freedom From Religion Foundation, they put up a sign in the Illinois Capitol building that says this, at this season of the winter solstice may reason prevail. There are no gods, no devils, no angels, no heaven or hell, Religion is but a myth and superstition that hardens hearts and enslaves minds. Reason. That's reason. There are no gods, no devils, no angels, no heaven or hell. They call that reason, and I call that foolishness. Professing to be wise, they became fools. They rejected that which is clearly seen. That which is evident to them. And so I call the Gospel power. Well, they call it foolishness. So we can refute that newspaper article. right? But they say, it's foolishness! What are you even talking about? With all this God and this Jesus and this prayer stuff. To them, it's moronic. Jeremiah 8-9 says, the wise men are put to shame. They are dismayed and caught. Behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord And what kind of wisdom do they have? They reject the Word of the Lord and the end result is what kind of wisdom do they have? The answer is that they're lacking in wisdom because in pride they're looking to themselves to answer life's questions. They're not looking to God. It's a sad situation, really. But it's not one without hope. So the Corinthians are facing the same kind of situation. They're facing the situation where individuals are rejecting God and they're thinking well, all these worldly philosophies, and Paul writes to them, and he says, "No," he says, "the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us, those who are being saved, it's the power of God." Remember that it is the power of God. So as we look at this, uh, the Corinthians were facing the similar kind of situation, but I want you to see in this section that there are three things that the good news. Of Jesus Christ brings to this very dark world in which we live in. There's three things. Number one, the promise of God. The promise, the the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ brings the promise of God into this world. And we see this in our text because the gospel is the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises of God. Look at verses 19 through 20 with me. So, point number one in your outline is the promise of God. We look at verses 19 and 20 and it says this. For for it is <clears throat> excuse me for it is written I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside where is the wise man where is the scribe where is the debater of this age has not god made foolish the wisdom of the world you might be thinking promise What does this passage have to do with the promise of God? If anything, at least at first glance, it seems more like judgment. Well, Paul is actually quoting Isaiah 29 here. Listen to the words of Isaiah 29, because when you read Isaiah 29 and you read this passage in its context, you really begin to realize what Paul is pointing to. Isaiah 29, starting at verse 13, it says this, Then the Lord said, Because His people draw near with their words and honor me with lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me, and their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. That doesn't sound like today, right? These people, they draw near to me with their words. They live in this nation called the Christian nation. They call themselves Christians. They honor me with their lip service. This year we're going to celebrate Christmas. And even our even in our country, I know Christians get upset because we some of the the some of our world wants to talk about happy holidays and not say Merry Christmas. And it seems like even unbelievers are getting upset by that because they want to keep Christ just close enough but not too close. You know, I know plenty of people who are not followers of Jesus who are upset about the fact that we're denying the Christmas holiday. They want to talk about Christmas. They want to talk about Jesus. I don't want to follow Jesus. They honor Me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from Me. And their reverence for Me consists in tradition. Learned by rote. You know, Maybe they even know Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name, right? Tradition learned by rote. And their hearts are not in it. But then verse 14, Therefore, behold, I will once again deal marvelously with this people, Wondrously marvelous. And the wisdom of the wise men will perish, and the discernment of their discerning men will be concealed. God says, They're not near me. They honor me with their lips, not with their hearts. And what am I going to do? He says, I'm going to deal marvelously with them. Wondrously marvelous. And I'll take away their so called wisdom, I'm going to take it away. He goes on, verse 15, and says, Woe to those who deeply hide their plans from the Lord and whose deeds are done in a dark place. And they say, who sees us or who knows us? You turn things around. Shall the potter be considered as equal with the clay? That what is made would say to its maker, he did not make me. Or what is formed say to him who formed me, he has no understanding. Right? I mean, this is quite a funny illustration. right? A pot of clay looking up at the maker and going, He didn't make me. Right? Or to say, He has no understanding. That's that's the picture that is painted here. He says, Woe. Woe to the clay, for He has no right to speak to the potter this way. But, but then look at verse 17. Look at verse 17. Is it not yet just a little while before Lebanon will be turned into a fertile field? and the fertile field will be considered as a forest. On that day the deaf will hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind will see. The afflicted will also increase their gladness, and the Lord and the needy of mankind will rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. For the ruthless will come to an end, and the scorner will be finished. Indeed, all who are intent on doing evil will be cut off. Those who cause a person to be, to be indicted by a word, and ensnare him who educates at the gate. And defraud the one in the right with meaningless arguments, therefore, thus says the Lord, who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob: Jacob shall now shall not now be ashamed, nor shall his face now turn pale, but when he sees his children the work of my hands in his midst, they will sanctify my name. Indeed, they will sanctify the holy One of Jacob, and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. Those who err in mind will know the truth, and those who criticize will accept instruction. You see, while there's judgment in the fact that God will destroy the so-called wisdom of the wise, Paul is pointing to the promise contained in this verse. The promise that though God is not pleased with their rejection of Him, what he says in response to that is, I will once again deal marvelously with this people. Wondrously marvelous. And in just a little while, he says, Lebanon's going to be turned into a fertile field. And the deaf, they're going to hear. And the eyes of the blind will see. And those who don't know the truth will know it. And those who criticize now, they will receive instruction. That is hope. That's promise. So now, as we look at verse 20, Paul goes on and he says, he asks, Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? His point is that the wisdom of this world has been proven to be lacking. See, the wisdom of this world lacks. And God says, but it's okay because I'm going to fix that which is broken. I know that newspaper headline. And I've shown that that newspaper headline is meaningless. It's foolishness. But one day, one day, there will come a day when the world will look at me and they'll see true wisdom and that day is already being realized in the hearts of his saints and the hearts of the people who are his John MacArthur in writing about this text says this, love this he says, where are all the smart people who have all the answers how much closer to peace is man than he was a century ago or a millennium ago, how much closer are we to eliminating poverty hunger, ignorance, crime and immorality than we were in Paul's day, by the way I believe that many in this world, in fact, the the worldly mindset is that things are getting better, right? That things are getting better and better all the time. We're evolving, we're growing, we're getting smarter, things are getting better. I assure you, things are not getting better. He goes on, John MacArthur does and says, our advances in technology and knowledge and communication have not really advanced us. We're more educated than our forefathers, but we're not more moral. We have more means of helping each other but we're not less selfish. We have more means of communication, but we don't understand each other any better. We have more psychology and education and more crime and war. You see, end quote, by the way. You see, human wisdom has not and cannot change these problems. In fact, human wisdom often makes these problems worse. For it fails to recognize the cause, namely, sin. Sin is. Disobedience to God is the cause of these problems. I see it in my own home. I cause war all the time. I want what I want, and I'm willing to sin in order to get it. And the problem is, I've got three other people in my house who want what they want, and they're willing to sin in order to get it. And we do this, right? So this week, we see a man and his wife brutally murder 14 people. And injure many others in San, Bernardi- San Bernardino, California. And what's the world's wisdom? Half the country looks on and says, Guns are the problem. Right? Guns are the problem. We need to pass more gun legislation. We need to get the, the guns out of these hands, the hands of these criminals. Well, the other half, right? Maybe even sometimes my half of worldly wisdom says, No, guns are the solution, right? the the people should be armed so they can defend themselves and that's human wisdom in reality what's not needed what's needed is not a ban on guns right or even an armament of the people that's not what's needed either what's needed is a spiritual awakening what's needed is for god to destroy the wisdom of the wise so that his wisdom can be known See, God alone can solve these problems. So we look to Him, and we look to His promise, and we say, God, God, I pray, make foolish the wisdom of the world. Make foolish the wisdom of the world, including my worldly wisdom, and show us Your wisdom, O God. So having seen, number one, the promise of God in this text, that the Gospel is the fulfillment of His promise to make foolish the wisdom of the world, right, and to show the world His wisdom. Having seen that promise of God, now let's consider the second point in our sermon outline. I'm moving right along, by the way. This is good. The second point in our sermon outline is, number two, the pleasure of God. The pleasure of God. God takes pleasure in the preaching of the Gospel. He does. Because in it, he is glorified. You know, I take pleasure in the preaching of the gospel. Um, I just I, I love to preach, right? And, and I just I, I I take pleasure in it. But my pleasure pales in comparison to the pleasure of God with the proclamation of his word. Look at verse 21 with me. 1 Corinthians 1 says this. For since in the wisdom of God The world, through its wisdom, did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. See, God takes pleasure in saving people. By the way, this is not saying that preaching is foolish or a foolish act. It's saying that to the world, the message is foolishness. That it You know, if you're not a believer, you have to wonder, and the world has to wonder, why would they go and listen to preaching? Why would they get up on Sunday morning, your neighbors look at you, and they're watching you out the window as you get up, and you go out the door, and they're like, what are they doing, right? Like, they're sitting there, they're reading their paper, they're watching Meet the Press on NBC, or whatever they're doing, right? And they're thinking, what are they doing? Because they don't get it. To them, it's foolishness. And Scripture says, God is well-pleased. To save those who believe through this message that the world sees as foolishness. God takes pleasure in saving people. If that's not hope in a dark world, I'm not sure what is. He is well pleased, it says, to save those who believe. And he He does so through the preaching of the Gospel. And He does all this, by the way, because He seeks His own glory. And in the Gospel, He's lifted up. In the Gospel, He's lifted up. Listen to the words of Isaiah 48, 9-11. For the sake of My name I delay My wrath, and for My praise I restrain it for you, in order not to cut you off. Behold, I have refined you not as silver, but I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. For My own sake, for My own sake, I will act. For how can My name be profaned, and My glory I will not give to another? If there's ever a passage that talks about God seeking his own glory. It is this one. Unless you think you say, Well, Pastor, you know that's an Old Testament text, and that's not really talking about the saints, that's talking about Israel. Listen to Ephesians 1, verses 5 through 6, and then uh, verses 12 and 14. Ephesians 1 says this He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace which He freely bestowed on us, the Beloved. And then verse 12, "...to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory." And verse 14, "...who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession." Why? To the praise of His glory. See, God seeks His own glory and that is right and true and good for He is God. When I seek my glory, that's a problem, right? (laughs) Because I don't deserve that glory. But when God seeks His own glory, it's right and true. So He's well pleased to save those who believe in the message preached and the Gospel. He takes pleasure in that and He's glorified in that. Yes, He loves you. Absolutely. He loves you because He first loves Himself. And if he didn't love himself, he wouldn't be a righteous God. Yes, he loves you. So do not hear me say that God only saves you because he wants to love himself. He loves you because he loves himself. It brings him glory in so doing. So having seen, number one, the promise of God, that the gospel is the fulfillment of his promise to make foolish the wisdom of the world. And having seen, number two, the pleasure of God, that God takes pleasure in the saving of people. What a blessing. God takes pleasure in the saving of people. Look at the third point in your outline. The third point is uh, the power of God. Number three, the power of God. Look at verses 22 through 25 with me. It says this. For indeed, Jews ask for signs, and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, to Jews a stumbling block, and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both the Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So here Paul says, we preach Christ crucified. We preach the gospel, the good news of what Christ has done for those who are His. And he says, for that is the power of God and the wisdom of God. In other words, the Gospel is true wisdom. Wisdom from God. And His power to save men is revealed in the Gospel. His power. That's why Romans 1.16, one of my favorite um, passages. By the way, I learned this doing children's ministry as a rap. I'm not going to rap it for you. But Romans 1.16 <laughs> says, For I am not ashamed of the Gospel. I almost want to do it. <laughs> for I am not ashamed of the Gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. See, the Gospel reveals the means through which men might be, sa- might be saved. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the Gospel for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. See, and what San Bernardino needs right now is power. Not power that comes from human wisdom, Right? not gun control. Right? They don't need the government saying, well, what's really needed right now is to strip everyone of their guns. And they don't need power that comes from guns either. Right? They don't need the power that says, we need to arm our citizens so that something like this will not happen again. The ultimate power, those things are human wisdom and they may have some effect. I'm not arguing that that we may make some of those, some of those moves and that they do have some effect. What I'm saying is that's ultimately not going to solve the problem. That's not the real problem. Power that is needed. What San Bernardino needs right now, and the world, is the power of the gospel. Christmas is a time of joy and celebration; it really is. But Advent is meant to be a time of longing, and I I can't help but feel as I kind of move through Advent that I'm, I'm waiting for something bigger. Right? That it's it's a time of expectation and longing and hope. That we remember we remember those of the past who lived on the other side of the Messiah coming, who looked forward to a coming Messiah for, for centuries, looking forward to a coming Savior who would save the people from their sins. And now we, this side of Christ's coming, look forward to His return. And we long for His return. Knowing that one day, the events that happened this past week in California, they won't exist anymore. That God... He's going to make things right, that he is making things right, that, that there is a promise of God that he will fix that which is broken, that he takes pleasure in calling people to himself and that power. That power is found only in the gospel, not in human wisdom. So notice also that Paul contrasts the wisdom of God with the wisdom of men, and he does show by showing us that men seek after different things. Paul mentions two groups and the things that they desire. He mentions, number one, Jews. He says the Jews who were, who were seeking after signs. We read about this in Matthew 12, verses 38 through 40. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees came to him and said, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given but to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He says, you want to see a sign? I'll show you a sign. It's called the crucifixion and the resurrection. Wait until you see that sign. And you know what? They saw the sign. And they said, so? All right, what does it take? What does it take for an airplane to write Jesus is Lord in the sky? Or for the clouds to come together and form that? And somebody says, well, it was an airplane. What does it take for God to prove Himself to mankind? Does He have to come to earth? Like, become a human and live and die? Is that what it takes? Oh, wait a minute, He did that, remember? John 2 is the same thing. They come to Him and they say, we want a sign. Well, by what sign or authority do 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 you do these things? And He says, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. And the Jews said, it took 46 years to build the temple, Jesus. And you're going to raise it up in three days? He said, no, I'm speaking of my body. Destroy this temple, my body, and I will raise it up in three days. So there's Jews who seek for a sign, and then there's Greeks who are searching after wisdom. Colossians 2, verses 1-4 through says this, "...for I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf, and for those who are at Laodicea, and for those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged." having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ Himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And Paul says, I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. You want true wisdom? What you need to know is Jesus. That's what Paul wrote to the Greeks. And Jesus says to the Jews, you want a sign? I am the sign. And see, most people, I believe, fit into one of these two groups today. Those seeking physical proof and those seeking wisdom or intellectual proof. In fact, if you want to grow a church, and I said this last week, you consult the church growth experts. Many of them will say you need to provide people with the things that they're looking for. You need to provide them with things like music and lights, and emotional experiences, right? There's not, nothing wrong with music. Nothing wrong with lights. And we should be emotional. We should respond emotionally to what God has done for us. You go a step further and say, maybe theatrics. Maybe we can have a play. Maybe we can do acrobats, right? Maybe we can have pyrotechnics. And all of which appeal to people seeking after signs, not all those things are bad. I have no problem with drums, do I, Bill? Like we could have a we could have a band up here, we could have drums. But if we have music because we think that's going to appeal to people, we're wrong. It may appeal to their, their selfish desires, it may appeal to their worldly wisdom, but there's one thing that has power to produce change, and that's the gospel. And Paul says, Paul says, God is pleased through the preaching of that message. But lest we think that it's all about those who are seeking after signs, we need to be careful that there are some who, uh, in the church growth world, who will talk about well-structured arguments and dynamic speakers. Right? That I've been in a situation where a church was looking for a pastor, and they said, "What we want really is a dynamic speaker." And I threw up a little in my mouth because it's not about how dynamic the speaker is. It's about whether he preaches from this book or not. And he may be the world's worst speaker. He may be terrible. But if he preaches from this word, there is power in the word. Because well structured arguments and dynamic speakers, they appeal to people who are searching for wisdom. But it's worldly wisdom oftentimes. So while the message of the cross may not appeal to either of these groups in it, there's power. God has promised that He will build His church and the means that He's going to do so is through His gospel, through the proclamation of His word. So just in review, look, i got five minutes left, in review, right, we see the promise of God, that God has promised to make foolish the wisdom of the world. To make foolish the wisdom of the world and to make known His wisdom. We see number two, the pleasure of God, that God takes pleasure in saving people. And number three, the power of God. The gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. So how do we apply all of this, both individually and corporately, specifically, here at Harmony Bible Church? How do we take all of this and then apply it to our lives? Well, number one, we must remember the promise of God. We must remember the promise of God. Right? We must live lives worthy of the Gospel. We must remember what He has done and is doing In this world. To call people to Himself. To make His wisdom known in this world. And what He's done in us. And in light of that, we must live lives in light of the Gospel. As Paul says. Number two. We must remember that God takes pleasure in saving people. God takes pleasure in it. So we need to pray for the lost. Right? We need to pray that He'd be glorified. God, I know that You are a God who seeks to glorify Yourself. That You seek Your own glory, and that is good. And therefore, I pray for My neighbor that he would come to know You that You may be glorified in His life and through the proclamation of Your Word. And then we need to bring Him glory ourselves by sharing the Gospel. Right? looks different for all of us. I understand we're, we're growing in that and we're growing in faithfulness in that. We're all called to be witnesses. We are all called to be witnesses. And somehow we have to work that out in our lives to where we're growing more and more and more faithful in that. People should know that you're a Christian. Number three, we must never lose sight of the fact that the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. That it's the gospel. right? Therefore, we shouldn't focus our efforts on trying to meet people's felt needs. right? We shouldn't focus our efforts on physical proof or on intellectual proof. We can make this service an emotional experience. We can add all kinds of elements to this service that detract from the gospel. But God says, there's power. There's power in the preaching of the gospel. See, we must remember that that's where real power lies. And as we talk to our friends and our family and our our neighbors. It's very much the same thing in our own individual lives on a different scale. But that it's not so much our burden to prove to them that God exists, but to proclaim, to share the Gospel of God and what He has done for us. Let's pray. Father God, I thank You for Your grace. Thank You for your mercy in our lives. God, I pray that as we talk so often, week after week, about being gospel-centered, about remembering the gospel, about living in light of the gospel, about never losing sight of the gospel, that even as we talk about those things, that those words would not just become so familiar that we forget what they're all about that we wouldn't forget the Gospel. We wouldn't forget what Your Son, Jesus Christ, did for us through the laying down of His life and the resurrection from the dead and what He is doing for us now and the proclamation of the good news that You are drawing people to Yourself and that You will one day send Him back to fix that which is broken in this world. God, I pray that we would never lose sight of those things. I pray that we would live lives worthy of the gospel, that we would live in such a way that we are seeking to honor You and remember what You have done for us. God, that we would pray for the lost, that we would seek the salvation of the lost by sharing the gospel with them. And God, that we would never lose sight of where power truly lies in the salvation of souls. God, not in our programs, not in our eloquent speech, Not in signs and wonders, but instead through the message of the cross. God, help us to cling to that now. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Jason Pauley, pastor of Harmony Bible Church in South Thomaston, Maine. Feel free to share this message with others, and we invite you to connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Harmony Bible Church. God bless you, and to God be the glory.